like to mention first for the uh, sake of the the new people who are here this evening that uh, if you come to the evening meeting and you have questions on your mind things that you would like to have addressed you're very welcome to let us know about it uh, there's down the back there by the entrance door there's some slips of paper uh, at least they're supposed to be I hope they're there and uh, you can write your question on it and, and, and come and drop it in the gong up here and I'll be very very happy I, whenever I come in on Sunday night I always look in the gong and hope there's going to be a question and uh, if there's a question it just makes my night because to be honest I don't really know a lot of the time what people are interested in and I can grab it on until the cows come home about things that interest me but I'm not sure that that's um, what you're, you're all into you know we monks we live a pretty funny life here and, and um, so anyway um, if there are things that are on your mind that you'd like to have addressed in the evening meeting you're more than welcome to uh, let us know about it and also, there should be a slip of paper down the back there that uh, gives the uh, an opportunity to dedicate, to make a dedication of our evening uh, meeting here together, the effort that we make together, and the, the punya, the wholesomeness, the, the blessings that are generated in keeping with good Buddhist practice. It's uh, it's an opportunity to make specific dedications to those who may be suffering or those who in particular need and. So it's fine if you have anybody that you'd like to have mentioned, then again, just uh, write the name on a piece of paper down the back there and, and, and leave it up here. And then uh, that'll be announced as a dedication before we do the evening chanting. But tonight there's no questions. And um, so the thing that came to my mind that was maybe worth talking about is... The question of um, effort, as I said at the beginning of the meditation, it's important that that we are aware of uh, the fact that, that we're making our own effort in practice. Uh, if we're not really aware of this, then heedless ideas can float around in our mind and, and we can just be acting habitually or, or trying or performing, trying to perform our practice, you know, trying to be good Buddhists with an image of what a good Buddhist is in our mind, rather than really being in touch with our own motivation, which is actually, I want to change my life. I want to do something with this life. I don't want to die full of regret, thinking, oh, I missed that one. I think it's quite possible. In fact, I've seen a few people who at the end of their lives, they just oh, blew that one. In fact, they, 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 they put it worse than that. And uh, I think it's quite possible. In fact, uh, it happens a lot of the time. And, and that's not the case for us. We all feel there's work to do. There is 
something that can be done and we have the good fortune coming across these teachings that that aim at equipping us with the skills to do what we can do to make the difference that is possible in, in training ourselves and training our body, our speech and our minds. But if we lose touch with that motivation, if we lose touch with the feeling that I really want to do this because it matters to me, we can be just sort of practicing. We can be kind of doing our Buddhism. We can be kind of doing our meditation. And Whereas in the beginning, there's all sorts of enthusiasm and vitality and a, God, I want a good wicket here. This Buddhist caper, this is the business. Uh, you know, and with the right crowd here. And that's in the beginning, you know, it feels like that. At least that's how it felt to me. But after a while, it can become a bit, ooh, a bit sort of, you know, like flat beer. You know, not worth drinking, really. <laughs> it's a fitting metaphor or not, I'm not sure. But <laughs> well, like stale bread, how about that way? Stale bread. You know, or bre- uncooked bread, that's probably better in metaphor, because we haven't gotten properly cooked yet. Once, our, once we've been well and truly cooked in our practice, well, then, you know, we can you know, loosen off our effort a little bit and... Uh, not worry so much about it once we're well and truly cooked but most of us are not that well cooked yet and, and uh, it's like eating uncooked bread it really gives you indigestion you it's not good for you so in other words our practice ceases to be producing the kind of benefits that we were hoping for and one of the reasons for that can be this relationship to our motivation the, the, the feeling being being in touch with that sense that there is something I want to do. I want to do this. I'm not doing it because my mother told me to do it or because it's popular. or Even my mother did tell me to do it. That's not a good reason to do it. Even if it is popular, it's not a good reason to do it. The reason for practicing is because we suffer and we have faith that, that the suffering is not an obligation. That there is... There is such a thing as real wisdom. That wisdom can be cultivated. This is, uh, this is what the basic teaching the Buddha taught. He tried everything. He tried all the techniques, all the teachings that were around at the time. And, and he excelled at them all. He was, he was great at them all. But they didn't free him from suffering. And eventually, as a result of the sincere effort and the determination and the persistence of his efforts and the accumulated paramita from all the, the lifetimes that he put into this work and the purity of his motivation, he did manage to come across a way that did work. And the way that he discovered was the way of wisdom, the way of understanding, the way of seeing clearly. Not using a technique to change things, not doing what somebody else told him to do, but altering his approach to life, altering the quality of awareness that he was living out of in such a way whereby he didn't distort reality. He ceased to impose, he ceased, to, he ceased from projecting, projecting his idea on reality and in so doing saw reality, saw clearly and And that seeing clearly, that capacity of seeing clearly, referred to as wisdom, or panya, insight, knowledge. 
And so he said, this is the way. This is not techniques, not just changing conditions, but making the right kind of effort that produces wisdom that sees clearly. And when there is this wisdom, well, then we're okay. Then we can relax our effort. When there is wisdom, we can move through the world, whether it's an ideal world like this one here right now, where everything's comfortable and convenient and beautiful and agreeable, or whether it's a thoroughly disagreeable world where there's lots of noise and bad smells and bad company and, and all sorts of unpleasant sensations. What he was pointing out was it's possible to cultivate a kind of wisdom that enables according with all conditions without suffering. So wisdom's the point, really. How do we make the effort that gives rise to wisdom? Well, as I started off by saying, if we're not in touch with our motivation, that's, that's one way of losing out. We need to really give value to the fact that I do care about wisdom. I do believe that wisdom is possible. It's, it's not just something to read out of a book. It's like the effort it takes to tune an instrument. This is actually one of the images the Buddha himself used when he was speaking about the right kind of effort and practice. He had observed, I think it was, he had observed somebody, a boat going down the river and with a musician on it, I think was the, the story, if I remember rightly. And, and um, for an instrument to sound beautiful, it's got to be rightly tuned. And when you tune your instrument, well, you know what it's like. You know, play it a guitar or I used to play the violin. And tuning the violin, it's, it's, not, it's not so easy. They haven't got kind of fancy mechanical toggles there to, to twiddle. You've got this kind of wooden peg that sometimes gets stuck in the hole and, and, and too tight, too loose, too tight. And you, the right kind of effort to, the right kind of pressure on the peg, you've got to feel the wood, you've got to feel the peg, you've got to turn it with the right kind of energy. And, and at the same time, of course, you're listening, you're listening. You're really there listening. And that listening and feeling and getting it wrong, this is learning how to make right effort. This is how we learn to make right effort. Yeah. And when you know it's right, then you know it's right. Ah, oh, that's right. So it's important that we understand in this practice that we, you know, if you play in the Buddha's orchestra, you've got to tune your own instrument. He'll do the conducting. He'll do the conducting, but he won't tune our instruments for us. You've gotten born, so you've got an instrument. And you've got the Buddha as a conductor, but we have to tune our own instruments. And if we think that somebody else is going to tune an instrument for us, well, we miss out. You know, we end up playing flat or playing sharp, and it just doesn't feel right, and you can start complaining and whinging and whining about life. But, well, we've got to, you know, we've got to reconnect, reconnect with that place within us that really cares. And, oh, yeah, it matters to me that I move through life in a way that's harmless. It's not creating suffering for myself or others. And the way I do this is determined by the kind of effort that I make. The way our society is, the way our world is, we're living in such extraordinary affluence that, and with technology now, wonderful technology, that as wonderful as it can be, it can be wonderful. It means I can ring my mother every week for two penny a minute, two pence a minute. It's wonderful to ring New Zealand and chat away. I used to ring her once or twice a year. It was, it was always a big deal and nearly every conversation was a disappointment because there was far too much energy invested in it. And Well, now I can ring her every week and 
I don't have to go out to New Zealand, which is a relief. It's much easier just to chat on the phone. So technology can be wonderful. Or, of course, medicine, you know, the wonderful things they can do with medicine. But technology can also make us feel like everything's supposed to be convenient and can basically make us lazy. You know, in my cootie, I've got one of these. I can sit in my chair, my cootie, with one of these little things, like this, and I just push the button like that, and the lights go down. And then I can push the light, and the lights come up. I don't even have to get out of my chair. I love it. I just love it. I mean, it's not a big deal. I mean, everybody's got these things. They're kind of all over the place. But it's just such a neat thing. But what happens if the light, if it breaks? Or if, you, you know, your spell checker doesn't work on your computer, for instance. Or, you know, the heating. We've got the heating in the stomach hall here organized so that it, it's supposed to come on at just the right time and get the right warmth. And the floor's not supposed to crack during the meditation. And, well, tonight it came on at the wrong time. And as soon as it happened, the floor started cracking. I thought, who's in charge of the heating around here? It's inconvenient. Well, this is one of the, this is one of the results of uh, technology. Uh, if there's wisdom, if there's wisdom, well, then we, with wisdom, we see both sides. We see what we gain, and we also see what we lose. What we gain with technology is a wonderful sense of convenience. But what we lose is, well, we find that out when it's not convenient anymore, when things break down. If we don't have wisdom, if we don't know how to be in touch with our own motivation to make our own effort and practice, then we become attached, we become addicted, we become imbalanced. And that's really unfortunate. Now, if there's not wisdom, if they're not careful, not mindful, we, we don't see this. We just keep going for the things that make life more convenient. The more convenience, the better. That's, that would be a distorted view, but a very normal view. If something is vaguely inconvenient, you know, like a cobblestone is out of place, you know, you get a litigation case out on the local council or something. If, the, if your broadband is down for a few hours, you, you're ringing up and complaining to the service provider with indignation, not an equanimous, I say, do you think you could attend to my broadband service when it's convenient to you? No hurry. Not likely. We, we can get... Uh, <laughs> yeah, very indignant, very easily. I hear these days, or I read recently, that, that the latest technology is that you don't have to get up out of your chair in the pub because there's a beer mat that can tell when the glass is getting empty. <laughs> and the bartender will know from his computer, apparently, to come over and top up your beer glass. Now, isn't that a development? Isn't that something wonderful? <laughs> All these wonderful things that are happening in the world that um, actually, if we're not careful, can make us extraordinarily lazy. And we lose touch with, with uh, that place within us that knows we're really responsible. Really. We're responsible for the kind of effort we make in life. If we choose to get attached and deluded and lose balance, well, that's something we're responsible for. So one of the things the, uh, the Buddha pointed out that was, was extraordinarily helpful is uh, in t talking about the kind of effort we make in practice. He analyzed them, as he was known to do, the great analyst he was called. Was, um, and he talked about the four different types of right effort. Now, many of you will be familiar with these four types of right effort. 
or at least have read about them, but it's helpful to keep going back to them and, and to remind ourselves. And, and each time we do that, well, then our contemplation will go deeper. Like last week, I spoke about the, the practice encouraged by the Buddha of regularly reflecting on a particular theme. And I suggested that you could you know, take, for instance, the, the ten paramitas and take one paramita, one of these perfections, one of these blessings, a day or one for a week and just go over and over and over and regularly reflect on it. Well, likewise with the four right efforts, it can be very skillful to take one of these four right efforts and spend a whole day just going back to it over and over again. Keep a log, keep a diary, write it down. How do you feel about it? How did you do? So, as I say, you would have probably come across this, the uh, right effort, uh, Sama Wayama is pronounced, it's, it's called in the Eightfold Path, right effort. And uh, it's one of the factors, one of the fa- eight factors of the Eightfold Path that Buddhism is necessary to develop. In identifying things, he wasn't just holding up a technique that needs to be learned and performed, but he was, as usual, encouraging our contemplation in an area, in a way that put us in the put us in the maximum, gave us the maximum possibility of taking responsibility for our lives. So these four right efforts, the first one, is the effort to remove already arisen unwholesome states of mind. So we have unwholesome states of mind, and this is the effort to remove unwholesome states of mind that have already arisen. And the second one is the effort to avoid the arising of as yet unarisen, unwholesome states of mind. That's a different kind of effort. Now the third one is the effort to maintain already arisen wholesome states of mind. And the fourth one is the effort to give rise to as yet unarisen wholesome states of mind. Now that's interesting. I find that interesting. You might think, right effort. Oh yeah, right effort. That's a good idea. I'll make right effort. But when we look at it, the four right efforts, well that's more subtle. And uh, it's helpful just to ponder on these. Like the first one, the effort to remove already risen unwholesome states of mind. Something you can spend a long time thinking about, unwholesome states of mind that we have. What kind of effort does it take? What kind of effort do I have to make to remove unwholesome states of mind? Well, it's not the same effort that I make when I'm trying to give rise to wholesome states of mind. It's a different kind of effort. Now, to identify that, it's <coughs> helpful. We have unwholesome states of mind, like, for instance, angry. Now, being angry is bad news. doesn't feel good. doesn't help me. doesn't help anybody else. I lose my self-respect. I don't sleep well. All sorts of consequences of getting caught up in anger. You start to look ugly. Your skin goes bad and you get a bad reputation, all sorts of things that happen if you get caught up in anger. And uh, so if you've got a lot of anger, you think, well, what, do I, what sort of effort do I need to make to remove anger? And as we apply this contemplation, this is cultivating the right effort. We, we, what sort of effort do I need to make? So, for instance, you could um, realize that cultivating um, an appreciation of how much how damage, how, how damaging it is to get caught up in anger. That's a good contemplation. 
What's, what do we lose by getting caught up in negative states of mind? That's one of the passing contemplations. Now you get caught up in greed. You, you've got a problem with greed, you know, the credit card or whatever, Amazon.com. I mean, it's a killer, Amazon.com. Not for me, because I don't have a credit card, but or eBay. I know a lot of people who really have trouble on eBay. They just, I guess it's a sort of a gambling addiction. I'm not sure what it is, but some people get really hooked on buying all sorts of junk off eBay. And they got the credit card, and they just once you get in there, well, I'll just have a little look. And the next thing you know, an hour or two's gone by, and they've been bidding for all sorts of bits and bobs, and and uh, they don't feel very good about it. But uh, there's no point in in just moralising and say, oh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't be going onto eBay all the time, or feeling guilty, or whatever. We need to get more subtle about that. What we can do is contemplate and just see, well. What is the result? To really use our minds, to really engage our thinking, what is the result of getting caught up in greed? I know this is greed, and I know it shouldn't be greed, that's obvious, so I don't have to go on about that. So what is the result? How do I feel when I follow greed? Do I feel good? Do I feel good when I follow greed? No, I don't actually. Now to really make that conscious, that's one way of making right effort, to reflect on the, the way we lose out by getting caught up in negative states of mind. Or the possibility we have for equipping ourselves with strength before the, these things arise. We can contemplate how to strengthen the heart. And if, if we strengthen ourselves before these things arrive, we're in a better position to not get taken over by them. Well, actually, that goes into the second right effort, doesn't it? The, the effort to avoid the arising of as yet unarisen, unwholesome states of mind. If at the moment I'm feeling quite peaceful and happy and contented, and uh, but I know in the past, from past experience, this doesn't last, and I get caught up in such and such a mood. Well, the Buddha was quite um, refined in the way he spoke about dealing with you know, distractive states of mind, but I think basically there are there are three ways of approaching these things. One is when something comes up and distracts the mind, you can deal with it there and then by just turning away from it, like in meditation. There's an unwholesome state of mind, you know, it's like worry. I'm worried about, you know, what have they prepared the breakfast for tomorrow? Well, that's none of my business. I don't need to think about that. But because I happen to be hungry and I, and I like breakfast, and I could start worrying about it. Oh, well, they haven't got enough materials for breakfast. They, they didn't put the order in, and so there isn't going to be any breakfast, and whatever. Or maybe that's greed. It's an unwholesome state of mind. It's completely unnecessary. And, and so, but it's not got a lot of energy in it. So when something like that arises, it is quite possible generally just to turn away from it right there and then and come back to the meditation object or come back to a feeling of presence, feet on the ground, sitting upright, body awareness, and that'll deal with it. There's another level of intensity of distraction, which has got more and more energy in it, more energy invested in it, whereby just turning away from it's not going to work. So some, some things we actually have to turn to and look at and investigate. And then there's another level of intensity, of distraction, of difficulty that we come across in meditation, where all we can do is endure it. Push your tongue up against the roof of the mouth, is what the Buddha said. He said it's like, it's like if you come across a madman or, or a drunk or something, 
He's not trying to have a reasoned argument. If he's violent and he's causing trouble, he's just pinning him to the ground. You know, hold him down until he gets his senses back again. You don't say, shall we share our feelings? You know, so. <laughs> How do you feel about this? <laughs> you know, he's out of control. Well, you, <laughs> you got to hold him down until he gets his senses back again. Well, there are such tendencies in mind. That's helpful to know that unwholesome states of mind that have already arisen, we can't just deal with them in one way. We need to be prepared. And, uh, there are different kinds of effort to make. And then the as yet unarisen unwholesome states of mind, as I was saying, that we can prepare ourselves in advance. Like if, um, for instance, worry, anxiety, fear, negativity, negative worldview, feeling guilty. You know, these things that are so troubling and so embarrassing, really. I mean, we've got so much, we're so lucky, we're so fortunate, and yet we can, we can suffer over the most ridiculous things. Well, sometimes what's called for is learning how to make the heart strong. That if, if we've got a habit of just following moods, following sensations indulging as we are encouraged to do in our world, well then what happens when a negative mood comes along, a negative state comes along, well then just as we're good at indulging in pleasure, well we unfortunately go and indulge in pain. We, we grasp at the feeling guilty, we grasp at the anxiety, we become it, we get lost in it. So if we have such tendencies of indulgence, such tendencies of becoming weak and, and being overcome by these states, what can really help is to strengthen our hearts beforehand, to not wait until these things come up. And one of the meditations that's encouraged, one of the contemplations that's, that's very helpful in this is, is the contemplation on, on compassion. To really identify the force of compassion as a force, as an energy. Not just the idea, but as a, as a, as a, as a power. And the meditation on this, that for instance, one of the meditations that suggested that we can do is imagining ourselves, or, or, or not necessarily imagining, actually acknowledging or feeling, if it's the case, that we're suffering. Some, if you're not suffering at the moment, well then bring up some feeling of suffering, some unpleasant feeling of like being insulted or being dismissed or being misunderstood or feeling unloved or uncared for or unsupported or betrayed. All of us have got something we can turn to and feel that feeling. Feel that feeling in the body. This is in the heart or in the stomach or wherever. Just feel how sad life can be. Then turning our attention to the image, the idea, the image of somebody we really love, somebody we really care about, and imagining them, daring to imagine them experiencing such suffering as you felt. And immediately, without having to try the heart, immediately gives rise to compassion. May they not have such suffering. May they be free from suffering. This is it. This is the meditation object. This feeling. May they be free from suffering. And it's a wonderful discovery to discover how totally natural it is. We're not lacking these qualities. We just somehow don't know how to tune into them. We can feel this. Anybody can feel this. We just need to exercise the the skill of contemplation to, to give rise to it. and So such an exercise of imagination and 
can give rise to this feeling in the heart. Identify it in the heart. Identify where you feel it. May they be free from suffering. May they not suffer. I want them to not suffer. That's compassion. And then identifying with the thought, using the thought, may they be free from suffering. And this is our meditation object. And so we're encouraged to exercise this. We can start with maybe somebody we care about and feeling this feeling towards them. May they be free from suffering. May they not suffer. I'm really wishing it, really feeling it in the body. May they not suffer. Then moving to other people that we care about and then slowly moving out of the nice rosy zone into the sort of the cooler, more neutral zone like, like the postman or the milkman or the bus driver, somebody who you don't really have any particular feelings about, don't know, but you know that they're a person, they're a human being, like somebody you feel neutral about, and trying to hold this same feeling of, may they be free from, this is a human being just like me, but consciously giving rise to this wish in the heart and the thought, may they be free from suffering. And then, as we exercise this, and we can do this anywhere, you can do it sitting on a bus, you can just looking at the next person or at an airport. I do this sometimes sitting in airport waiting lounges, looking at all these people around them, recognizing they're all human beings just like me, and they all suffer just like me. But giving rise to this, this caring wishing and really making a sign of it, becoming very familiar with it, discovering the power we have to generate it. And then we're encouraged to move around towards those people that we downright dislike, like some irritating relative or some noisy neighbor or whatever, seeing if there's a possibility of still holding that feeling, radiating outwards, using the thought, may they be free from suffering. And then, of course, as we all know, the Buddha's teaching to come back to ourselves, or start with ourselves, actually is what we're encouraged to do, but wherever we start to come back to ourselves and to feel the same feeling for ourselves. May I be free from suffering, just like any other being that I love and care for. May I be free from suffering. And there's a tremendous nourishment, a tremendous vitality can come from that. As you've possibly heard me say before, when I, I was teaching this meditation at a, at a conference down south somewhere, and after I, the meditation finished, a, a woman came up to me and turned out she was a vicar's wife. And she said, I just thought I should let you know that we'd, we don't talk like that in this country. May I be free from suffering. We consider that selfish. And obviously she'd picked up on my, my rather peasant New Zealand accent and thought she would help me out by pointing out that, you know, in this country we don't wish ourselves well. We don't wish that we'd be free from suffering. That's just not done. Well, I felt, you know, I really felt for her, actually. That's a sad condition. That's a really sad condition to be in. But it's very normal. Um, a lot of people find it difficult when they start meditating to genuinely wish themselves be happy, wish themselves be well, because there's a kind of conditioning that we've all received that says there's something selfish about that. Well, as the Buddha skillfully pointed out, that if we can't wish ourselves well, we can't really wish anybody well. Now, we're just like anybody else. We're just the same as anybody else. And, and the effort we need to make is to wish all beings be well, all beings be free from suffering. And this is an effort that we can make to strengthen our hearts, to prepare ourselves, so that if negative states of mind arise, we've got the strength, we've got this resilience. So then the third right effort, the effort to maintain already arisen wholesome states of mind, like for instance, if you 
in meditation you've found how to arrive at, at a really steady state of mind, a peacefulness, a, a quality of, of clarity that, that helps give rise to understanding, that is the context in which wisdom can arise. If you've discovered this for yourself, then it's important to, to find what kind of effort do I need to make to sustain this, to maintain this. If I get greedy about it, as probably most of us have discovered, you have some nice state of mind arise, and you say, oh, I like this, I have some more of this, and <laughs> it's just like ice cream, you know, oh, I like this, I have some more of this, and we can get away with it for ice cream for a while, but uh, when it's the mind, a state of peacefulness of mind, we get greedy, well, as soon as we get greedy, we've just disturbed it. we spoiled it. So getting greedy for wholesome states of mind doesn't work. We need to see that. What kind of effort do I need to make to maintain already arisen wholesome states of mind? Well, we need, it's a kind of protection. We need to protect ourselves. Sometimes that means a, a conscious decision to cultivate contentment. Now, getting greedy about wholesome states of mind doesn't work. What the Buddha did encourage was being contented. So, when we have a nice meditation, like nice being agreeable, agrees with my preferences, I feel good. But when we finish the meditation, we notice, oh, that was agreeable. Be careful. Don't get greedy. Because the next time we come to sit meditation, it's quite likely that we'll want it again. Perfectly understandable. But if we get caught up in that wanting, we're not going to get that state of mind again. Because it disturbs it. So next time we come to meditate, I will be perfectly contented with whatever happens. Whatever happens in my meditation... Despite what happened last time, whatever happens in my meditation this time, I'm going to be contented. And that's a quality of effort that we can make. We can choose to cultivate that. And it will protect our wholesome states of mind. But uh, as I was saying, these, these um, right efforts are something to contemplate for ourselves, to, to ponder on. So I would encourage everybody to do that, to, to think about, well, how can I maintain wholesome states of mind? Like patience or or tolerance, or kindness. What kind of effort, when these states of mind arise, how can I protect them? Maybe it means avoiding certain situations. And then the fourth right effort is the effort to cultivate or to bring about, to give rise to, to generate the as yet unarisen wholesome states of mind. Something else to contemplate. Maybe it means seeking out some good company. Inspiring company. If we uh, watch a lot of television or read a lot of casual novels or whatever, uh, worldly concerns, that doesn't necessarily give rise to as yet unarisen wholesome states of mind. Uh, yeah. Reading something inspiring, reading autobiographies of, of great beings, is, is I find a very inspiring thing, can give rise to daring spirit or a courageous spirit. If you read about some of these great people that have lived before and, or seeking up the company of, of people who know more than we do that can also give rise to as yet unarisen wholesome states of mind so this evening uh, a contemplation on prim primarily on effort uh, I'd like to encourage us all to pick up these four right efforts as an object of contemplation in keeping with the Buddha's encouragement not as uh, techniques that we have to learn to get right 
to start from the place, to always start from the place, whether it's in our formal meditation or in any contemplation, always to start from the place of remembering, reconnecting with that, that feeling we have. And that deep within us is, I want to do this. I'm doing this because I want to do this. I'm not under any obligation to do this. I'm making this because it, it concerns me. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Thank you.